this morning and hope you know you're our honored guest. And it's really hard to say visitor and look at the popes. Uh, they're just a, a family that does not feel like visitor to us. We, we certainly miss them a lot. Uh, we are very thankful that they are here with us this morning. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of Mark, just a little bit, we'll be reading from the book of Mark, chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I want us to be thinking about the idea of, of what we follow. That is going to be what we talk about, what we're going to be spending some time discussing this morning, is following. And I, growing up, had a very difficult time with following. When it was in school, I had a difficult time following the rules, following the instructions that the teacher gave me. In fact, I, I was one of those kids that was considered a handful, I believe. Uh, the one that oftentimes sat in the corner and had to, had to do everything separated from the rest of the kids because I would typically follow them. If they were starting to get in trouble, I was going to go right down that path. The most painful memory I have of my, my ability to not follow and my, my ability to try to rebel against, against sound uh, teaching or, or against good advice has to have been the time when I was, I was a rather young, young man and my brother had woken up before me and there was snow on the ground. He had went outside to go sledding and I came out to join him and mom had just bought us for Christmas that mom and dad had bought us these, these new sleds. They were inflatable, kind of like an inner tube and I laid down on my stomach to go down the hill and he ran up and said, whoa, 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 don't, you don't want to do that. You don't want to go down on your belly. And if I recall, my, my words back to him were, Something along the lines of, shut up, I know what I'm doing. Uh, at the bottom of that hill was a series of very big rocks covered by the snow. And when I went down face first, I went face first into those rocks. I, I had a hard time following, even though he had been down this hill several times and he knew what was waiting for me at the bottom. Uh, and to his credit, he, he walked to the bottom of the hill and he helped me up and helped me back in the house and didn't take the time to rub salt in an already very bloody wound. But I, I realize that it's, it's a very wise thing to consider what you're going to follow in life. In Mark chapter 1, we read about this idea of following. And in verse 14, let's start reading. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came <clears throat> into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and went away to follow him. I really want us to notice the wording that is, that is used here in this scripture. Jesus didn't just say, hey, come over here and look at what I'm doing. Jesus didn't just call to these men and say, hey, come check this out. You know, that seems to be the, the highlight of our, uh, of our times, the, the call to check out what I'm doing, check out what I've seen. That is basically all that our social media is, is look at this. But Jesus was going a step farther. He didn't just say, come see what I'm doing. He said, let me give you a new purpose in life. The NLT reads this passage, I will show you how to fish for people. 
The God's Word translation says, I will teach you how to catch people instead of fish. Both these translations hit to the point that Jesus was trying to do more than just say, look at what I'm doing, but rather do what I am doing. But notice again, the New American Standard. And I, I, I do think I like the way it reads best. It cuts straight through to the underlying point. He says, if you follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. Again, I'm not claiming that one of these is better than the other, but when we follow Jesus, isn't that not what happens? We are made into something of His fashioning. If we are following Jesus, we are molded by His will. We are disciplined by His ways. And that is why those who choose to follow Him, follow him are called His disciples. Today, I'm going to ask you a question. This morning, I want you to consider this question very, very seriously. Are you following Jesus? This is to also say, are you becoming? Are you being made? Are you being transformed into what He would have you to be? A holy people, a righteous people, a sanctified or set apart people. Now before we answer that question, we need to pay close attention to those words. Becoming, being made, being transformed. And I'm going to tell you right now, I, I, I may get this wrong. And if I do, Miss Paula is going to correct me at the end of the ser uh, services. But those words, those words are present participles. Now, that's as much as I'm going to pretend to know about the English language. But those words are present participles. That means they are continual in, in, the, in their sense. They are in a continuous tense. That means it's not something that we just get to check off. In, in, in my terms, in, in, in your Kyle Blevins vernacular, that means you can't just say, been there, done that. It is a process that continues to go throughout your life. It is a continual process that starts on the day that you first submit to Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as you answer that call, the same call that He gave in Mark chapter 1, verse 17. Follow me. It process starts on that day and it is continuous until the day that we finally rest from our labors, finally rest from our toils. And nowhere in between can we honestly say, I've done that. I've made it. I'm finished. We haven't reached the goal until we are at home with Him in heaven. So again, I ask you, are you following Jesus? Are you a disciple of Christ? This morning, I hope to make absolutely clear what that involves. And once we know what is involved, I hope you will do one of two things. One, I hope that you will look at yourself and that you will see that I am following Jesus and I'm not ready to stop. I'm ready to keep going until the end. Or number two, you will look at yourself and realize that I have not been following Jesus. Maybe I was, but I'm not anymore. But I'm ready to get started again. So let's start off by designing, defining this word, disciple. When we consider a follower of Jesus, we consider a disciple. A disciple is a follower or a student of a teacher, a leader, or a philosopher. Let's say a disciple is a learner. They are someone who is learning from one. But not only are they learning, they are applicators. They are applying what they learn to their lives. That is why sometimes they are called imitators. So you could say that a disciple is a student. A student who wants to learn, a student who wants to know everything they possibly can about what it is they are, they are being educated on and wants to become what they're educated on. 
Let me say that they are students with goals. They aren't just as, as, as I did in school. They aren't just floating through trying to get, get the easy grade, trying to get the, the points so that they can get a good place in college. They are someone that has a goal. says, this is what I want to become from what I am learning. And the goal of a disciple is to become like the teacher. Turn over to Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 40. It says, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after has been fully trained will be like his teacher. That is, that, that is the goal of a disciple, to become like the teacher. So Christ's disciples are striving to be like Christ, striving to imitate him. In fact, that has been God's will all along. If we turn over to Romans chapter 8 and consider in verse 29 what it says here about, about God's predestination. Romans 8 and verse 29 it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. It was God's will all along for his people to be conformed to his son's image, to look like his son, not physically, but to look like him spiritually, to be of one heart, to be of, of like mind with his son. And this is where disciplineship starts. Discipleship starts with a strong desire to follow Jesus and to be like Him. And you have to want it. It has to be something that you desire, not just, not just something that everyone around you is doing. You're not simply following a crowd. You are following your Savior. You're following your Lord. You're doing more than just what it takes to fit in. You're actually, if, if we follow Christ, we're going to be doing what it takes to stand out. As we talked about in class this morning, to be set apart. You have to want Jesus. Turn over to Psalm 63 for a minute. We consider this idea of wanting, wanting Him. Psalm 63, a psalm written by David, says, verse 1, O God, You are my God, I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes, but the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. Think of the words that David used here in talking about his desire, his want for God. He said, my whole being longs for you. With every ounce of my essence, I want you. And it is with you, God, that I am satisfied. Not with this palace, not with my, the, 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 the wives that I have, the people that I rule over, the money. It is with you, God, that I am satisfied. You are my help. To you I cling. When we have that desire, then we want to be more like Him. We want to follow after Him. We want to bear a cross for His sake. So are you doing that? Are you striving to become like your teacher? Maybe you think you are. But can we know for certain 
Can we be sure that we are disciples of Christ? The short answer to that is yes, we can. We can be absolutely certain. We can be confident and say without a shred of doubt in our hearts, I am a disciple of Christ. I am an imitator of Christ. Because Christ has given us some identifying marks. He has given us some marks to show, some, some things to look at, to use as a ruler, as a, as a measuring stick for the life that we live and how it compares to His life. Let's consider some of these identifying marks that the expert on Jesus Himself gives us. Turn over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 31 says, So Jesus was saying to to those Jews who had believed Him, If you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. The first mark that I want to point out is the mark that, as the New King James Version says, if we are abiding in the words of Christ, one who abides in Jesus' words is a disciple. And so to be a true disciple of Christ, we must be diligent in studying the teachings of Christ. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul gives similar advice to the young preacher Timothy. He says in, chapter, in verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Without study, can we possibly do that? Can we possibly accurately handle His word if we never spend time in it? Because it is through time spent in God's Word that we come to know Jesus. And we come to know His words, and then we must abide. We must continue in them. So that means, again, we have to be more than just hearers. We have to be doers. James 1 tells us, verses 21 through 25, teaches us to be, to be more than just hearing the Word, but be doing the Word. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 Again, highlights the, the, the way we need to be doing the words. Verse 21 through 27 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will depart or declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Verse 24 says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. That is to say that our foundation, our foundation is the word and the application of that word to our lives, and the obedience to that word in our lives. If we are not doers of the word, we have a weakened foundation. It will crumble beneath us. And when that happens, where will we stand? On the day of judgment, when we stand before God to find our sentence for all eternity, where will we stand? In view of all this, I would like to point out I would like to point out two things that a true disciple will not do. The first one is a true disciple will not fail to study the Bible diligently. I believe believe this is one of the obvious points that is being made by this passage in John John chapter 8, verse 31. That if we are going to abide and continue in God's Word, we must give it diligent 
consideration, diligent study. We must give it time and place in our lives. The second point that I want to make from this is that a, a true disciple will not choose to miss opportunities to study with others. Bible studies, worship services, gospel meetings. These things are vitally important to the true disciple, the true follower of Christ. And we're not talking about just the few hours that we have here in this building. We are, we are disciples together. And so when we gather together to study, a true disciple not only just wants that in their life, not only just looks for that and says, I desire that, they need that in their lives. But when we abide in His Word, we see that that also will cause us to develop another identifying mark of discipleship. That's found over in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. A disciple is one who loves the brethren. John 13, verses 34 and 35, written after Christ, showed, showed this level of servitude and humility that, that was so mind-blowing to Peter, who, who said, you, you absolutely cannot wash my feet. Look what he says in verse 34. Christ says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is after Christ that we need to pattern that love for one another. As he said, I have loved you, love one another. We should have a love that is visible to others so that by this all will know. But how exactly did Jesus display his love for us? Here, he displayed it through servitude, through humility. He displayed it through sacrifice, through giving his life through putting forth an effort to truly know His followers, to care for His followers? If we are true disciples of Christ, should we not do the same? As He sacrificed Himself for those who didn't deserve it, should we not sacrifice ourselves, sacrifice our time, even for those that we feel are not going to be thankful for it, are not going to care? Should we lend a helping hand to our brothers and sisters when they are in need. And you can do all of this, every bit of it, you can do without having to go and become some sort of registered medical practitioner or, or a handyman or a carpenter. A lot of times I think one of the things that holds us back from doing more is we go, I'm not skilled enough. I don't have what it takes. Maybe it says, I, maybe we say, I'm just not the best cook. So I can't do that. I'm not a very good conversationalist, so whenever I go and I sit with someone and the conversation stalls, things are going to get stale pretty quick. They're going to get awkward. But you know, we need to remember that we are not told to dazzle our brethren. We are not told to entertain our brethren. We are told to love our brethren, to let them know that you care for them, that they are important to you, that you are thinking about them, that you are praying for them. These things can go a long way in showing your love for them. So we will use the abilities we have if we are true disciples of Christ. Use the abilities we have. And remember that even just a cup of cold water, even things that seem insignificant, that don't seem to amount to much, these things are noticed by God. A disciple is one who loves the brethren. And John 15, verse 8 says, A disciple is also one that bears much fruit. 
John 15, verse 8 says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is the same terminology that we read back over in verse 5 of the same chapter. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. We shouldn't be comforting ourselves with the knowledge that we did a good deed at one point. Sometimes we look at good deeds done and we treat them as if it was something that, that we kind of set up on a shelf with those trophies that we maybe got when we were younger. I used to have a whole wall of, of trophies, most of which really were participatory trophies. I didn't do a whole lot to earn them. But I would set those trophies up and that reminded me of the good things that I had done in sports. We can use our good deeds oftentimes as trophies and set it up and say, I remember that time when I did this. I remember that time when I did that. But in John 15 verse 8, we're talking about someone who bears much fruit. That doesn't rest upon the one or two or, or maybe countless good things they've done, but just says, I have to continue. I have to continually keep doing these good things, not because they saved me, but because they prove to others and to myself that I am following in the steps of my Savior. I am following in the steps of my Lord. Jesus was encouraging us not to say, look at what I've done. Jesus was encouraging us to say, look at my life. Look at what defines me. And that will prompt others to define their lives the same way as well. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify you? No. Glorify the church? No. Glorify your Father. Glorify Him, Him who you have modeled yourself after. But we also have a warning in this passage. John 15 verses 1 and 2 says, The failure to bear much fruit will cause one to be cut off from the body of Christ. How can we expect to be followers? How can we expect to be disciples of Christ if we are not connected to His body? If we are cut off from His body? All of this speaks so very clearly. To be a disciple, to be a disciple, we have to be more than what has become the norm in our day and in days past. We have to be more than just a casual church member. We have to be more than a church visitor. We have to be more than a pew warmer. We have to be committed followers, especially to the teachings of Jesus, to the love of the brethren, and to bearing much fruit. Understanding that, the true depths of commitment are seen in Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, verses 25 through 26 excuse me, 25 through 33 says, Now large crowds were, coming, uh, were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple 
who does not give up all of his own possessions. In this passage, we read some very interesting and, and sometimes difficult things about the cost of discipleship. In Luke 14, verse 25 through 23, we read first that Jesus must come first in our lives. We read up here in verse 26 about hating father and mother and wife and children. We must understand these difficult passages in light of other passages that tell children to respect and to honor their parents. We are to have love for one another, but that love cannot overshadow the love we have for God. Cannot overshadow the love and commitment that we give to Christ. He must come first. He must come first before our job. He must come first before our family. He must come first before our kids and the schooling and the sports and everything that is tied with that. He must come first before our desires. He must come first before our, even our, our own well-being, our life. Christ must be placed in the number one spot in our life. That is part of the cost of discipleship. If we are going to follow after Him, then we must be willing to make that decision. Luke 14, verse 27 says that we must be willing to suffer for Christ. And that's what you're going to find when we try to follow God in an increasingly ungodly world. We're going to find difficulty in that. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 tells us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Many of us today will not suffer the persecution that those in the early centuries did. Many of us today will not, because of our decision to, to preach the gospel and to, to follow Christ, we will not be dragged out of our homes. We will not be banned from buying food in the marketplace. We will not be thrown in prison. We will not be killed. We will not be exiled. But there are those today that still have those sufferings. There are those in the world that still face that reality. But even if we don't face that sort of suffering, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, when we decide to follow Christ, we will, face, we will face hardships. We may not face attacks. We may not even have it right in our face. But we will. We will, at the very least, have to work and have to toil and have to suffer to, to stay true to, the, to Christ in a world that has turned their back so far away from Him. So in fact, if we look at our lives and realize that we, have, we don't face any hardship, we don't have any suffering, we don't have any persecution, that may be a red flag for us to look and say, am I truly, am I truly following after the man who, because of what he stood for and his obedience to God, was drugged into a ridiculous trial, was spit upon and slapped and beaten and mocked and strung up for all of the city to see, whose hands were pierced, whose blood was shed because he was true to his word. Am I truly following in his example if I suffer absolutely nothing today? And lastly, verses uh, through the end of the chapter, or then through verse 33, we see that we have to forsake everything to follow Christ. Or as others have said, Jesus must become both our Lord and our Savior. We have to give up our identity. We have to give up our, our livelihood. We have to give up everything that we own. Not in the fact that we give it away, but that it is no longer a place of preeminence in our life. 
We no longer look to these things and say, this identifies who I am. My car, my house, my, my checking account, my job, my, my popularity, none of these things define me. I give all of that up, and if it came to, would give all of that up because I am identified in Christ who died for me. He is my Savior, and He is my Lord. That statement is so powerful. That statement goes so far beyond saying that He did something good for me. That statement says that He owns me, that I belong to Him, and He has authority in my life. And you know, that is probably the hardest part of discipleship. We can say that Christ is more important than our family. We can say that, you know what, I'm willing to, to suffer. I'm willing to, to be made fun of. I'm willing to be ridiculed. But to say, I am not the decision maker in my own life. But rather, I'm giving that up. That every decision that I make, I will view through the lens of Christ. That requires trust. That requires hope in the promises that He has given us. That that yoke that He puts upon us will be easy. And that that day of reward will be there to reward us for the toils. That requires acting upon that hope and faith. In other words, that requires discipline. That high cost of being a disciple of Christ in that day turned many of Christ's followers away. When they realized what it was going to cost them, they said, this is too much. And today, we see it very similar. When we realize what is required, people either turn completely away or they say, I will just try and, and look like a follower. I maybe will go through the motions, but I won't truly pay these prices. And it leads to many questions. Questions like, why on earth would you require this? Why would you make the cost so high, Jesus? Don't you know that if you didn't make people put you first, if you allowed them to put their, their feelings and their families and their opinions first, that they would be more likely to join you? Don't you know that if you made it easy and they didn't have to suffer, that they would be more likely to follow you? Don't you know that if you didn't have to forsake all of these things, if you, could, if you could wear Christianity like a hat, a coat that you put on on Sunday and you take off Sunday afternoon, don't you know, Jesus, that if you would lax up a little bit, you would have so many more followers? I think the answer to that question is yes. He does know that. But Jesus is not interested in the number of His followers. Jesus is interested in the kind of His followers in the type of follower that he has. He is interested in disciplined followers. He is interested in disciples. And so we look at the cost. As the passage that we have just read says, we must examine it. We must consider it. And when we do, we have to weigh it out and say, is it worth it? What's the reward of discipleship? Romans chapter 5 and verse 9 tells us part of that reward is a future blessing. Romans 5 verse 9 says, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. God will punish sin. God will punish iniquity. We have been studying through the book of Hosea, and that's the one thing that is, that is taken up such a large section of that book, is that God loves His people and will redeem His people, but He will punish iniquity. Part of the reward of being a true disciple of Christ is we are saved from His wrath in that day. Not only are we saved from wrath, but Revelation chapter 21, 
tells us what we have in return. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death, there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Such a wonderful, wonderful passage that John has recorded for us. And, and I recently read about the task that John was given in the book of Revelation was to, to paint the unpaintable, to describe the undescribable. And I thought that was such a beautiful way to, to, to talk about what we read about in Revelation because the reward that we have in heaven is truly undescribable. The way that, that John describes it is the best way that man can possibly begin to understand it. But I have hope and faith and trust that it is so, so much more. It is so, so much more glorious than what man can physically describe. I look forward to that day. And I can look forward to that day if we are, if we are marking ourselves as disciples of Christ. But these are future blessings. These are things that come in the future. We are also told that we have present day blessings, blessings for us right now. Over in John chapter 14, verse 27, the disciple of Christ will experience better than what anything the world can give you. The disciple of Christ will experience peace. John 14, verse 27 <clears throat> says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world get, uh, do I give to you, but do not let your hearts be troubled nor let it be fearful. We have something that the world cannot truly give us. And that is peace. Oftentimes we think we live in peaceful times because uh, but war is not on our doorstep. Because our family is healthy. Because our, our finances are taken care of. But that is worldly peace. God gives us the peace of mind to know that these future blessings are attainable. And no matter when war does come to our doorstep and sickness does come to our family and, and financial crisis does fall upon us, we still have that. The disciple also has joy. John 15, 11. <clears throat> it says, And concerning judgment, um, John 16, excuse me. John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. The joy that God gives us. The joy that is so strong. It can lift us out of depression. It can take our focus off of what is happening to us and onto what He has done for us. Likewise, in that 15 verse 9, if we go back a little bit, it says that He gives us love. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. He gives us a love strong enough to displace the fear 
that we often feel. To look at everything that is going on, everything that comes from Him, and instead of being worried about tomorrow, we can be thankful and love Him for today. And then Mark 10 and verse 28 through 30. Mark 10, 20, 30 says He gives us a family. <clears throat> he makes us a part of a family that is able to replace even our physical families that may shun us, may turn away from us for our decision to follow Him. Mark 10, verse 28 through 30 says, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, housing and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. There are so many blessings that come immediately in this day to those that choose to truly follow Christ. They will go to show that the reward of discipleship far outweighs the cost. Now that we understand what a disciple is, what it costs to be, and what it we get in return, and I come back to our question this morning. Are you a follower of Christ. This morning, an invitation is extended to you. An invitation is open, and it is not mine. The invitation does not belong to me. It does not belong to the church here at Lake Street. The invitation is heavenly. The invitation is from Christ Himself. He invites you to come follow Him. Just as He stood and, and spoke to the men in their boats, Come follow me. He speaks to you and to me today. Follow me. If you have done so once in the past, but lately, instead of following, you realize you're, you're just kind of standing around. Maybe you've turned and started walking the other direction. I want you to remember Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14 says, For by one offering, He, that being Jesus Christ, by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We go back to our word again. Being. Continually. Christ offered His life so that you could be perfectly forgiven from all your sins and so that you could continually be setting yourself apart for God. That means that we have a race to run. And we need to take that race back up. We need to not give up and to not give in. But if you have never made the decision to follow Jesus. If you have never answered that call, then remember this. There is no greater reward. No greater reward in heaven or on earth than the blessings found in Christ. Blessings of true peace. Blessings of true joy. Blessings of true fulfillment. A life made full. Not a life just gone through. But a life lived for Christ. Blessings of a true salvation. And while this invitation is open and extended to you, it will not be open and extended forever. One day Christ is returning. One day He will come to receive His bride. One day He will come to take the church and those who have followed Him faithfully to their everlasting reward. But to those who have not, the only, the only thing they have to look forward to is everlasting punishment. 
So the decision then is yours. We're getting ready to sing number 280. If you'll go ahead and be taking out your songbooks. I have decided to follow Jesus. I told Joe it was going to seem like we picked this song out together. I had no idea he was going to leave this song for an invitation. But it can't fit more perfectly to this morning's sermon. Have you decided to follow Jesus? If not, why? Why wait? If you have, but you are in need of the prayers of the saints here because you realize you have begrown, become lax in that decision, please let it be known. Whatever we can do, come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.